I entitled this message, The Right Posture of Worship. The Right Posture of Worship. Y'all know what I mean by posture, yeah? That's the idea that when we're worshiping or singing, right, how do we act? How do we behave Do we stand up? Do we raise our hands? Do we kneel down? Do we fall on our face? What do we do? Those are all different postures of worship. And so a lot of people may be asking their minds, well, what posture is most honoring to God? And that's kind of a silly question because it's almost like asking, what's the most important tool at Home Depot? Well, it really depends on what you're working on, yeah? Well, in the same way, your posture needs to match What's going on internally? If we are in a place where God is asking us to consider what's going on deep within us and how we have submitted to him or not, then maybe we need to sit down, close our eyes, lower our heads and go inward for a moment. If we are celebrating the goodness of Jesus Christ and we're talking about how he set us free, maybe you want to stand up, raise your hands up to the sky. Great. Just make sure your posture matches your insides but that's not the heart of where i'm driving this morning the heart of where i'm driving is all the other elements of worship other than music if we are to pursue lives of worship what is the appropriate posture to live in and i would suggest to you that the appropriate posture to live in is on your knees humility is a cornerstone to the Christian life. We cannot be living sacrifices for God if we're wrapped up in self. Now, I'm going to need a little bit of help, and since I didn't let him know, I'm calling Lane up here. Lane, can you come on up here real quick? There's no warning on this kind of stuff, so be careful if you sit up front. I'll just let you know that. Now, Lane, if you can just read this scripture, I want us to consider this scripture as we dive... Glasses, right. Okay, yes, that is actually helpful. Good job. I would like to point out that as Lane is aging, we would like to go ahead and read the scripture. All right, fantastic. You can either read it there or you can read it right there. Both of them are the same. Yeah, that's bigger. There you go. Wait, hold on. Let me hold that for you. I'm just kidding. There you go. The whole passage? The whole passage, right on. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even on the cross, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. Humility leads to worship. 
Therefore, the fill in the blank in front of you is very simple. It is this pride blocks true worship. Pride blocks true worship. So I want this question to echo around in your mind as we are discussing a passage that we're going to study this morning. And that is what great blessings is God trying to flow into your life and you're blocking them with pride. What is pride stealing from you today? Is it that God wants to bless you with resources through someone else, but you're too proud to receive from them? Is pride blocking you from advice or wisdom from other people in your life because you don't ever want someone to have something over you? Pride sickens the heart of God. And seems to be one of the most powerful tools that Satan can use to lead us astray. Pride blocks true worship. What we're about to read is a story where we have two men, one good, one bad. Yet both are so caught up in self-absorption that neither one can see God. It takes A woman to step into the scenario, a woman of humility and strength to bring Jesus, to bring God, to bring the Holy Spirit back into the picture. May we learn from her this morning, her posture of living and become more like our heavenly father. Would you turn with me to first Samuel chapter 25, first Samuel 25, one page 209 in the Bible's handed to you. Page 209, 1 Samuel, chapter 25, verse 1. Let's pray for the word this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is alive and active. We sit under it now and ask that it would penetrate deep within our hearts. That, Father, you would turn on the light within our souls. Search us and know us. See if there be any wicked way within us, especially in the areas of pride. Father, root it out that we might be soft towards you that we might submit towards you, that we might immerse ourselves in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's see what it has for us. It says, now, Samuel died. Who's Samuel? Well, the whole book's called Samuel, so he's kind of a big deal. As a matter of fact, the second one is called Second Samuel. So Samuel's kind of a important figure in this whole story. Who was he? Well, he was the last judge of Israel before it shifted to a monarchy system. He ran Israel before King Saul was brought up under his anointing. As a matter of fact, he didn't just anoint the first king of Israel. He anointed David who would be the greatest king of Israel. Samuel was a prophet of God. He spoke on God's behalf. He ran the nation for years and years. But his season has ended. He made the transition. And now we shift into a whole new era. Other prophets are rising up. Prophets like Nathan and Gad. These guys are showing up to take his place. It says, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Now, not in the backyard, but they buried him in his hometown. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. All that means is that David keeps going more and more south. Remember, he is from the tribe of Judah. 
The proper king was to come from the tribe of Judah. Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, both of those are south. However, Judah is very south. And the further and further David goes down into the wilderness, the safer it becomes because that's his people. That's his tribe. So he is now deep down into the wilderness, hiding amongst the caves, and he now has a team of 600 guys. They have made up a stronghold down below to keep out of the public eye. But make no mistake, David is still being hunted down by Saul, the king that has gone mad. It says, verse 2, Now a certain man in that area where David was, in a town called Maon, who had property there at Carmel, the specific city, he was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. Now, the last time we heard about the city Carmel was when King Saul had this amazing victory over the Amalekites. So he comes back into a town called Carmel and sets up a monument to himself. Wow, didn't I do awesome? I should set up a monument to me. It's called the Saul Monument. Now, that's not really a great thing. Probably don't want to do that. It just further reflects Saul is not where he needs to be. But this man who lives down there, his name was Nabal. Nabal means fool. As a matter of fact, let's make it a little bit more modern. His name means idiot. Now, idiot has lots of cash. That's a bad combo. His name was Nabal. Now, it's not just about Nabal. What you're going to find is a lot of parallels between Nabal and Saul. How they deal with David, their perceptions towards God, their perceptions towards themselves. Very similar type of men at this point. Now, Nabal the idiot actually had a pretty stunning wife. Take a look at this. Now, Nabal, his name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. The only other Abigail in all of scripture is David's half-sister. Let's hope they're not the same person. He, she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Now, technically that means he descended from Caleb, but that's not probably what the author was trying to say. Because the word Caleb also has the same root as the word dog. What they're trying to say is idiot was like a dog. This is not a good guy, and the author's being very clear about that. So, he's dog-like. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men, and he said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you in your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep-shearing time. Pause. What is sheep-shearing time? We don't have the great big festival of sheep shearing. We do not hang out and go, hey, man, I'm sheep shearing. You want to come on over? Right? What is that? Well, in an agricultural world, they would shear sheep twice a year. They would do it in the spring. They would do it in the fall. As the sheep's coats grew out, we know that that's how they made their money. Sheep shearing time was when you would take off all the wool and everyone would get paid. Then everyone would have a huge party on payday and they'd have festival time. That's what we're talking about. So David says, hey, when you go to hang out with this guy, we're going to need something from him. So go during party season. 
when everybody's getting rich, right? And we're going to ask him for something, but here's how I want you to approach it. Go in, tell him, hey, I hope things are going great for you. I hope you live long. And by the way, it's sheep shearing time. Speaking of sheep, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men since we have come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find for them. Now, on the surface, something sounds a little weird. Now, just reading that in a Western mindset, it sounds like extortion. It sounds like a racketeering issue. What it sounds like is, hey, man, my 600 guys are pretty mean and nasty. We're all hanging out in the wilderness. So your shepherds come in and you know what? We didn't kill them. Maybe you want to give us a little something for the effort. You're like, what? You can't just ask me for money because you didn't kill me. That's not right. You can't just walk up and down the shops, right? Like the mafia and start saying, well, if you don't want us to hassle your stuff, you might want to give us a little bit of money. It sounds like David's running a mafia type organization, but that is not true. In the Eastern concept, especially the ancient world, hospitality was how things run. Which means if I'm in your territory and I do something of benefit to you, there is a matter of kickback of helping someone out. David and his men did not have any jobs. Remember, there's 600 disgruntled, messed up guys down there. They're all in the wilderness. And so what they said was, instead of just sitting around and doing nothing, we will organize into a defensive security force. We will bring benefit to the people down there whom we care about. And in turn, let's hope that they are generous towards us. Now, remember, it just said Nabal is loaded with money. So money's not the problem for this guy. And he is supposed to take care of those that take care of him. Now, he never asked them to do it, but they knew that it was a very dangerous territory. As a matter of fact, oh, if you look back through our stories, there was raiding parties all the time. People stealing stuff from everybody else. The only reason Nabal still has a lot of what he has is because David's team was watching out for him. This says a couple things about David. David didn't waste any time. David is still in protector mode, right? Israel could be assaulted. His people, especially in Judah may well get attacked. He's not about to sit by and let that happen. So instead of sitting around with his men, he puts them to work. He organizes this ragtag bunch and they actually become bodyguards. That's pretty impressive leadership. He could have sat back and just said, as long as Saul is chasing me, I'm not doing anything. But he wasted no time. He used every bit of his time for training. Because if indeed God was going to call him to be king, he needs to be a good man when he arrives. These are all lessons for us to learn. The other thing that I find interesting before we move on is David is doing all of this without a title. He's not king. As a matter of fact, not everybody recognizes him for who he is. Not everybody knows that he's going to be the next anointed king. So he's running a leadership role without a title. That's pretty shocking. How do I know that? Because many, many people come into the church and they say, Lance, I want to serve here. I said, great. Well, why don't you just jump and get involved? 
Well, I was just saying that, you know what? Maybe if I could lead one of your ministries, because I'm pretty gifted. All right. Well, how about this? How about you step in and do what you're built to do because you're good at it and see how you can bless the body? Well, you know what? The church across town was actually going to allow me to run their whole men's ministry. Oh, well, maybe you need to go back there. Before I became a pastor, guess what I did? The same exact thing. I was always teaching scripture. Why? Because it's how I was built. I always shepherded people because it's how I was built. No, nobody had any idea who I was. I had absolutely no title. I was not paid for it. And you know what? It doesn't matter. You go in and do what God asks you to do and you don't need a title behind your name to do it. You go out there and serve the Lord. If we are servants of God, then let him worry about the titles. You be faithful. That's different. Because God is not concerned whether you have a title or not. He's still watching as to whether or not you're using your gifting or not. Let's pick up the story in verse 9. So when David's men arrived, they gave the idiot this message in David's name. Then they waited. Now, in Hebrew, that means, and he made them wait. His idea was, wait, who's at the door? Nah, not interested. Keeps them out. Then finally, he answered David's servants, and he said, what? Who's this David? Who's this son of Jesse? Pause. Does he know who David is? Of course he knows who David is. Everybody knows who David is. Why? Because he killed the champion, Goliath. He was on every newspaper cover. He was on every magazine cover. He's everywhere. Of course, everybody in Israel knows who David is. So what's he saying? He's saying, I refuse to acknowledge who David is. Yeah, David may be a big deal in your world. You know what? To me, he's a nobody. Well, who does he think he is? Whatever. Now he's just a guy running around the desert. He's got no help for me. He doesn't exist in my world. This man is so self-absorbed. That he can't even acknowledge that David exists. Look at the next phrase. You know what? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Meaning, I don't know. Maybe he's just a rebel out there. Who cares? But he's got nothing for me. Is that very hospitable? No. He said, why should I take my bread, my water, the meat I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming back from who knows where? In other words... Walk away. I got nothing for you. I don't like you, don't care about you, and you are no one to me. What that is called is contempt. So David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. Uh Uh-oh. So they did. David strapped on his as well. And about 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. This is not going to go well. Are we all tracking on what is happening? Someone just ticked David off. And now he's going to go and slaughter and kill everybody. See, here's what I love about scripture, especially the life of David. It is so realistic. We always like to put people in categories. Oh, well, the great saints of the past and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not like that. And and I could never be like that. Trust me, you can be like that. (laughs) David, in his anger is about to ruin everything. He went from protector mode to attack mode in about 2.5 seconds. Why? 
because he was personally insulted. He shuts down everything of God, goes self-absorbed, and even though he's a good guy, he still can't see God's hand in this. Nabal, of course, isn't looking at God at all. So now we have two men about to go head to head, cause all sorts of chaos because no one is willing to look at God. Good thing that doesn't happen in the modern world. Verse 14, one of the servants of Nabal told Abigail, Nabal's wife, uh, ma'am, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were like a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now, I'm just saying, think it over. See what you can do. Because disasters hanging over our master and his whole household, us. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Let's pause. Is that you? Are you Mr. Know-it-all? Yeah? Nobody can talk to you. Your wife can't even talk to you. You're going to find out she can't even talk to her husband. No, because you got all the answers, yeah? You're the one, oh, everything rises and sets on you. Don't talk to me, woman. Don't anybody talk to you. You got no friends. Any friends that are near you can't even talk to you anymore. You have no accountability. You have nothing in your life because you've walled off everybody out of your pride. Because what? You have it all nailed down. It all ends with you, right? There's no softness there. I can tell you right now, if that is your heart, God is not operating through you. If he is, he has to do it despite you. This man has become completely shut off to any outside activity, advice, or whisperings of the Lord through anybody else. And I want to know how much of that is in you. When's the last time someone came up to you and said, man, you're out of line? What you're doing? What are you doing? Can anybody ever say that to you anymore? Oh, you're too old for that, right? Now you're an adult man and you're your own man and how dare they challenge you, right? Is that how you feel? You're not growing because you're not listening. And guess what the Bible just called you? A fool. It says this. So Abigail acted quickly. Your husband, an idiot, right? Your husband's an idiot. You better jump on it. Get going. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep. That's to be slaughtered for food. Five seas of roasted grain. Think large sacks of grain. A hundred cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs. The way they would do that is grab a bunch of raisins and squish them all together so you can carry them around easier. And you just kind of eat off the chunk, raisin chunk, right? And loaded them on donkeys. And she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Why? Because he wouldn't listen anyway. Now this is intriguing. This is one of the only incidents in scripture where a woman is praised for bypassing her husband. Why is that? I thought the Jesus way and the Jesus protocol was that the man is the head of the house and if the wife wants to get something done appropriately to honor the Lord, 
She directs her affairs through her husband to have them done. I thought there was this idea of wives submit to your husbands, which is repeated over and over and over in scripture. I thought that Paul argued that Adam was created first, then Eve. Christ is the head of man, man is the head of wife. So why is the Bible about to praise this woman for completely bypassing her man? Because this is a totally different scenario. This is a scenario of life and death. David is about to come and slaughter everyone in the household. And her husband is too self-absorbed to figure that out. So she has a decision to make. Do I allow everyone to die physically because of the foolishness of my man? Or has God commanded me to watch over my household and be wise and do what I'm supposed to do under his sight and obey God rather than man? That's why she's praised. Because she looks over and says, this is a God issue. And my man is not following God, not listening to God. And now great damage is coming upon my family. And I'm walking around. Pretty weird scenario. But watch how intelligent this woman is. As she came riding on her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her. And as she met them, David had just been saying... Oh, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. Well, he's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male alive of all who belong to him. Can we just comment for a moment on her courage? What's she doing? She rode out alone. She has servants that are carrying the gear, but what's going to happen if David attacks? Where are the servants going to go? They're out of there, right? She is literally walking in and putting her life on the line. She is now single-handedly one woman going up against a giant killer and 400 thugs out in the middle of the desert. No one would ever know. What she is doing is putting her life on the line for the sake of her household. That sounds like Esther to me. Remember how Esther was challenged that for the sake of the Jewish people, she put her life on the line. That's pretty extraordinary. This woman's tough, very courageous. She walks up on a bitter group who's just now complaining about her husband and how much they hate her household because of him. So how is she going to handle this? Well, good thing her character was in place before this ever started. Watch how she acts. You're about to see the longest dialogue of a woman in the whole entire Old Testament. 153 words in Hebrew. Watch how it goes. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground and fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. How about that for a posture? Is that how you start? Because what happens? You're now face down, completely at his mercy. He could kill you in a heartbeat. These are warriors. These are not just, hey, I hung out and I went over to Mervyn's or whatever, right? And there was this guy and he was a sales clerk. No, this is, this guy kills people for a living. It's what he does. She falls face down before him. Why? 
Because she has confidence in David? No. Because she has confidence in who? God. This has always been about God. It's not about man. It's not even about her. It's about God. Her confidence in God and her faith in God is so strong. Her humility is so strong. She has no problem in lowering herself before another human being. She doesn't consider herself to be above that. And she is an extremely wealthy woman, an extremely beautiful woman, all kinds of reasons why she should be arrogant, but she's not. She is a woman of extraordinary humility. She says the phrase, my Lord, here's what's intriguing about that in this discussion with David, she will say it 14 times. My Lord means my master, one that is over me, one that is my boss, one that exceeds me. Are you ever willing to say my Lord to anybody? Here's how she goes on. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I didn't even see the men my Lord sent. Now, it almost looks like she just threw her man under the bus, right? Where she's just like, hey, my husband's an idiot, right? Let's just, let's call it as it is. Now, does anybody think, wow, that's really mean to name your kid idiot? Anybody thinking about that one, right? Uh, most scholars don't believe that his parents named him idiot. They believe that either it had multiple meanings at the time, or that was a nickname that just stuck. <laughs> right? She said, don't listen to the fool. He's just being foolish. What she does not do is actually throw him under the bus. What she does is go accurate and say, listen, do not hold the whole household accountable for my husband who is currently making bad decisions. As a matter of fact, if she was throwing her husband under the bus, David would have dismissed her in his mind. She doesn't do that. You're going to find out that how she handles her husband away from him actually makes her more attractive because she does honor her husband. Now she's going to call it as it is. She's not out there just making up stuff. She's not saying my husband's awesome. No, he's a loser. We're all clear on that. And she's going to call it as it is. However, she does not keep bailing out on him and just throw him under and why don't you just hang out with me and blah, blah. None of that. What she could have done, just to let you know, she could have taken all her gear and slipped out in the middle of the night and let David rain down fire on her man. But she didn't do that. She did not abandon the household. She did not abandon her horrible husband. She stepped back in and said, I need to fix this if I can. She goes on. And now, my Lord, as surely as Yahweh your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. When did you do that? Right now. This is called reverse leadership. She's going, and so now that I've got here and you're not going to kill anybody, right? That's what she's doing. May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord, David, may they be fools like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Now, please forgive your servant's assumption by what I'm about to say. But Yahweh, your God, will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, the king. 
because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, meaning everybody knows that Saul's trying to kill him. The life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord, your God. That means God has you safely wrapped from harm. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Everybody like the little wordplay there? Because what did David kill Goliath with? A sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him, and he has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when Yahweh, your God, has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. What did she just say? She just brought him a generous gift and gave him three messages. The first one is this. Hey, I'm here on God's behalf to stop you from ruining everything. You don't want needless bloodshed on your head. Let's think about this practically for a moment. Not only is she talking about having a guilt-stricken conscience, but she's talking politically. Because here's what would occur. If David follows through on this and slaughters innocent men, because remember, it was Nabal's decision. Not all the men in the household, but David's going to kill them all. If he becomes known as a man who kills innocents, it's going to ruin his political career. Right now, he's known as a defender of Israel, not a personal vendetta slaughterer of Israel. So she steps in and goes, let me give you some political advice. Don't do this. This is not a wise move for you. You're beyond this. Don't go down to his level. Now, you don't instruct a king. You don't instruct a giant killer. David may not be king yet, but he's going to be, and she knows it. That's message number two. David, it is very clear to me that God is leading you to the throne. You know what? Keep it as clean as you can till you get there, because then you'll shine. Number three message, and when you get there, remember me. Now, why would she say that? Well, she's kind of playing off what just occurred, which is what? David did something for Nabal and asked for a kickback. She said, well, that's funny because I'm going to do the same thing. I just stopped you from ruining everything. So when it comes time, remember me. This is an intelligence, a wisdom, a planning for the future. This is a woman that knows how to run her household. This is a very strong woman. Let's take a look at where it goes from here. David said to Abigail, praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. Oh, at least David now looks up and notices God's talking before he was all wrapped in his anger, but it took someone else to step up. But when they did challenge him on his sin, what did he do? He went, you're right. I was about to ruin everything. What is wrong with me? Man, great point. It was going to get ugly, right? Look at the next phrase. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands 
Otherwise, as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and I've granted your request. And she turns away this massive slaughter. That's pretty impressive, right? So what happens next? When Abigail goes back home to her husband, who she just saved his tail, yeah, and everything he owns, well, he's in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He's in high spirits and very drunk. Great. Everybody get in a groove on what this husband is like? Yeah. So she didn't tell him anything until daybreak. Why? Because she knows what every smart woman knows. There's no point in talking to a drunk. As long as he's drinking, he is useless. Don't even bother. He won't remember what you said, nor will he be able to respond to you. Gentlemen, is this you? Yeah, at home, what? You're going to hide away from all your hard work. I get it. And you're completely locked off, still drinking. And no one can talk to you. You have your drink in your hand. When that one's done, grab another one. When that one's done, grab another one. And you become a useless husband and father. Is that you? Get it together. Because it's not who you were built to be. It's not who your family needs. The idea that we have husbands like Nabal in this church breaks my heart. Oh, I would never know. Because you look good in church. Do not allow Satan to rip off your identity. Do not allow your character and integrity to get lost in booze. You're better than that. You were designed for more than that. God wants to operate through you. God wants to move in you. God wants to use you in a significant manner. And this stuff is getting in the way. We cannot have that. That's not us. No matter how secret you think it is. Let's move on. When Abigail, uh, it says, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in his house holding a banquet like that of a king, high spirits, very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak in the morning. When Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. What? Why? First of all, what does that mean? Does it mean he had a heart attack? Does it mean he had a stroke? It clearly suggests that he either went paralyzed or into a coma. One of the two. Something just hit this guy. What was the information that rocked his world? Was it, I almost died? Wow. Life realization? Or what most commentators believed, his phrase was, you gave what of mine to who? Was it the loss of his stuff? Hmm. He became like a stone. About 10 days later, Yahweh struck Nabal and he died. How about that for a defender God? He literally looks, how long has this woman been married to this guy? I have no idea. How in the world did they hook up in the first place? Remember, in the ancient world, this was not about love. This was about this guy picked her up on an arranged marriage. She's forced to be with this guy. God stepped in, killed him. 
Look at David's response. This cracks me up. (laughs) When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. For he has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Okay, real quick side note on that word contempt. Real quick practical step or practical point. The word contempt, remember how I defined it for you? It means I'm better than you. You don't even matter in my world. I don't even know why you're still talking. You are an irritant to me. And quite frankly, I'm too good to even mess with you. So if I had my way, I wish you didn't even exist. Okay, that's contempt. We all clear on the definition? All right, now let me make it practical. If that enters into your marriage, you're done. How do we know that? Because the guru of all marriage counseling that writes the textbooks, a guy by the name of John Gottman, out of all assessments and analysis of marriages, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, there is one guaranteed factor that divorce is looming. And it's one word, contempt. The minute a husband or a wife allows contempt for their spouse to own them, you're done. Contempt stems from pride. How much of that is boiling in our spirit? Hmm. It says, then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. Wait, what? Oh, interesting. David gets back to the cave. Man, she was cute, huh? (laughs) Dave, she's married. I know, I'm just saying. I didn't say anything. I'm just, all I'm saying is, man, she's really smart too, huh? Dave, knock it off. All right. Just saying. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to take you to become his wife. Oh, well, that's not nearly as romantic as we hoped, right? Boss says, come with us, right? That's really what she got at the door. Now you look and you go, oh, that's really cute. Dave got married. He was going to have her as his wife. That's really sweet. What's the problem? Dave already has one. Everybody remember? Dave's already married. Who's Dave married to? Saul's daughter, Michael, right? We already know that he has one. Oh, wait, he actually has two. Let's keep reading. (laughs) David has sent us to take you to become his wife. Watch how she acts. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. No wonder he liked her. Check this lady out. She's like, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. Quite frankly, I'm better looking than you. However, I am a servant by nature. And so quite frankly, I don't care what you can bring me. Because remember, she's not marrying Dave for his money. He doesn't have any money. That's why he went to go get money from her husband. Who has all the money? She does. Because God just knocked her husband off. She's got all the cash. She has everything in her side. But instead of becoming self-absorbed, what does she do? Immediately goes into servant mode. All right, cool. I'm merely here for God. If God wants me to serve you, bring it on. Let's go. I'm all in. Look at this woman. David got quite a treat. The point of the story is God blessed David with Abigail. She's the hero in the story. But look at the next line. 
Abigail quickly got on a donkey, attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. But David had also married a Hinoam of Jezreel, and they were both his wives. Oh, he has a collection going. <laughs> you go, well, that's three. No, it's two. Well, what about Michael? Next line. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paul Tiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. What? You can't just give somebody's wife away. Hey, he's been gone for a while, you know, and I just might as well just hand you off to somebody else. That's going to explain a lot about what occurs later. Now, one last creepy side note, besides the polygamy thing, which we will address later on in our series. The only other Ahinoam mentioned in scripture, who is his other wife? The only other one mentioned is one of Saul's wives. Do we have a bit of a trading issue? Oh, you took my wife away, Michael, and gave her to somebody else? Well, that's interesting because I just took one of yours. Hmm, is this a battle of the kings? I don't know. Could be two different women. But what I think is so important is seeing the power of this woman's humble life. You go, what? Lance, I can't get past the polygamy thing. That's really freaking me out, okay? Side note on that. God has always progressively revealed to humanity what his desire is stop reading the new testament back into the old testament don't do that they never received any directives up to this point as to who they should marry or how many they should marry they're sorting this all out you're going to find out what they should have done is focused on the creative intent of adam and eve one-to-one ratio when they violate that it always goes badly but they weren't looking at that they weren't paying attention to what God really wanted. They were just focused on getting through life. In this day and age, marrying was a political issue for leaders. You marry multiple women to create treaties with those areas of the nation. It was not largely about, I want more wives. It was, I need more power. And it was creative ways of trying to figure out how to secure your leadership. So understand... It's just after this that after Solomon ruins everything, God starts saying, hey, you know what? Kings, stop it. This is really a bad idea. Stop your whole I'm going to get a bunch of wives thing. That's bogus. Don't do that. In the New Testament for leadership, it gets locked down where it's saying leadership. He is to be the husband of but one wife. Do you remember that? That starts getting locked down in New Testament later on. Why? Because it was God's intent all along. But the way you deal with humanity is like you deal with a baby. You start out the baby with basic directions. Adam and Eve got basic directions. Don't go in the street, right? You don't stop and go, here's what I expect from you. Quite frankly, when you turn 18, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to the little kids like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Give to them what they need at the time. All right, let's close this out. Here we have two men completely self-absorbed one good one bad whether you're a good guy or a bad guy a good girl or a bad girl pride has a way of stealing your vision of god as long as your world revolves around you and not around god we have some serious problems it's just bad theology 
And it's going to ruin what God wants to do through you. So I ask you again, what is pride stealing from you that could bring refreshment? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Search us. Reveal to us that, Father, different elements of pride has stolen blessings from me. And I know that my friends in this room have heard as well. We pray, Lord, that you would give us your eyes and that we would have a sober judgment of ourselves looking through your lenses. And that we would know where you are still reigning king and where we have taken you off the throne. May we restore you back to your rightful position as leader of us. In Jesus' name, amen.